Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. As Tom mentioned, my name is Chris, and I'm here with my wife, Kate. Um, we know the, the Minima's from Chicago, but we've recently moved to the Denver area, and so uh, we're just really excited to be here uh, with, with all of you, excited for the opportunity to come and uh, see where, where Luke and, and Janet have been for the last few months. So it's been great meeting all of you. Uh, let me just start in a word of prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of your Son and as your children. And we ask that as we look at your word this morning, you would give us understanding. Open our eyes to see you, our minds to know you, and our hearts to love you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series through Mark, but I'm throwing off the order a little bit. We're skipping chapters 10 and 11. When Pastor Luke returns, he'll Uh, double back to those chapters and preach through those. But this morning, we are starting Mark chapter 12. And as Pastor Luke's been saying throughout the series, Mark is certainly a historical record of who Jesus is and what he did, but it is more than that. Mark is making an argument. He's showing us who Jesus is and what this means for us and what this means for the world. And one of the themes that runs through Mark that we've already seen leading up to this point in this gospel, and we see again here, this is relationship and his interactions with the religious leaders of his day. People that were called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, the elders. And throughout Mark, we see as Jesus is doing his ministry and he's interacting with people, He's teaching and he's healing. We see crowds of people following Jesus and growing in their love for Jesus. Meanwhile, these religious leaders see him and they grow in their hatred towards Jesus, in their disdain for him. And what stands out in this passage is that up until this point, we've seen a lot of interactions between Jesus and these religious leaders and we see them accusing him. They're uh, trying to attack Jesus, his character, his teaching. They're trying to get him in trouble. But at this point, in this chapter, there's a significant change. 
It's not the religious leaders accusing Jesus now. Now it's Jesus accusing the religious leaders. And what we'll see as we study this passage is that Jesus' accusation against the religious leaders is also an accusation against us. And we'll see the consequences of this accusation. But at the end, we'll also see a great message of hope and encouragement for us. So the way we're going to look at this passage this morning is that we're going to see what it's saying in general. What did Jesus mean with this parable? And then we'll see specifically what it teaches about the world, what it teaches about all of us, regardless of our backgrounds or what we believe, what it teaches about the church, and what it teaches about Jesus. So that'll be our outline. What the parable says and what it teaches about the world, the church, and Jesus. So first, let's take a look at this parable starting right in the beginning. Jesus starts by setting the scene. A man plants a vineyard. Now that statement in itself may not mean very much to us. We may not see anything significant in that. But the the Jews and the religious leaders that Jesus was talking to knew exactly what he was saying with that statement. Because a vineyard at that time was the national symbol for Israel. Just like we may see a a political cartoon today, and we may see an elephant or a donkey, and we may know that it's representing the Republican or the Democratic Party, a vineyard in this time was the symbol that would represent Israel. And we see throughout the Old Testament, God and his prophets and, and people speaking on God's behalf using this imagery of a vineyard to represent Israel. And just one example of that comes out of Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The prophet Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And he goes on then to describe Israel. Israel so identified with this imagery of a vineyard that even in their temple, which was the most important religious building that they had. They would go there to celebrate all the most significant holidays. It was decorated all on the inside with these images of a vineyard representing God's people with him. So when Jesus talks about a man planting a vineyard, they would have known very quickly that he was talking about when God made for himself a special people, Israel. And so Jesus continues, this man plants a vineyard, and then he goes to great lengths to take care of it. He puts up a fence to keep all the right things in and keep all the wrong things out. He digs a pit so that the fruit gathered can be turned into wine. He builds a tower so that watchmen could keep a lookout and guard and protect the vineyard and so that they would have storeroom to keep all of the fruit. And all of these were the necessary steps to make sure that the vineyard had absolutely everything it needed to thrive. Jesus is giving a history lesson with this imagery. He's reminding the religious leaders about when God saved Israel from Egypt. This would have been about 1,500 years before Jesus was born. God saved Israel from Egypt, and he went to great lengths to take care of his people to set them up to become a healthy, growing society. So he gave them his law 
to teach them how they were going to relate to him as God and how they would relate to one another. He gave them various leaders who would help them become the people that God called them to be, a people who loved and worshipped God, people like Moses, people like David. Not only that, but God actually lived there with his people, at first in the tabernacle, sort of like this portable temple, and then when they actually built a temple, he lived there. God was so physically present with his people that we see in the Old Testament, like in the books of Uh, in the book of Joshua, they describe battles that they would go into as God being the one who actually fought those battles for them. And so this once tiny and enslaved people became one of the wealthiest and most powerful kingdoms in the entire Middle East. God did for them, and he gave to them absolutely everything that they needed to be a healthy society. And then Jesus explains, the man left, and he leased his vineyard to tenants. And this represented the time when God ceased to physically guide his people like he did when he saved them from Egypt. And instead, God entrusted them to particular leaders who were supposed to guide them to becoming the kind of people God called them to be. So God entrusted them to these people called the Levites and priests, And they were the spiritual guides for Israel, supposed to lead them in loving and worshiping God. He entrusted them to various judges and kings who would be their political leaders. And these leaders, these tenants, were supposed to help Israel grow. And they were supposed to become a people who loved God, who worshiped God, who obeyed God. People who produced the fruit that God required who produced the fruit that God required. So what is this fruit that we're talking about? This is worship. Worship. You see, in the Old Testament, God set apart this special people for himself, and he set them apart for a special purpose. Their purpose was to know God and to be his people. And when they truly knew God for who he is, then they would love God. And when they loved God, they would obey God. And they would obey God by loving their neighbors. And they would love their neighbors by seeking their good and making God known to them. And all of this, knowing God, loving God, obeying God, loving their neighbors, all of these were forms of worshiping God. It's all a chain that begins with knowing God and leads to wholehearted, life-transforming worship. Because worship is obedience motivated by love. Worship is obedience motivated by love. And so these tenants, these people that God left in charge to lead his people, were supposed to guide them to becoming people who obeyed God out of their love for him. And as a result, people who would love their neighbors as themselves. But what happens instead? These leaders become selfish. Rather than leading Israel to loving and worshiping God, they wanted to become like God. So over the course of these 1,500 years, Israel consistently 
turns away from God and turns to worshiping other false gods. They worshiped gods of the other surrounding countries around them. They worshiped gods of nature. They worshiped the gods of power and of pleasure and of wealth. But God, being so patient, being so loving, doesn't leave Israel to self-destruct. Time and time again, God sends his servants to collect the fruit of the vineyard. That's how Jesus describes it in this parable. God sends his prophets throughout history, like Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and he sends them to confront these leaders and to turn Israel back to God. And how do these leaders respond? Without fail, time and time again, they mocked, they beat, they killed these prophets. And now we see in the parable we're moving towards the climax of the story. God sends one more to collect this fruit of his people. Not a servant, but his beloved son. He sends Jesus. God himself comes to his people to turn them away from these idols that they're worshiping and to turn them towards himself, back into a loving relationship with him. And as we've seen throughout Mark, these Jewish leaders, they see Jesus turning people away from their influence, away from their power and towards God. And they hate it. They haven't changed since the Old Testament. They still want all the power, all the influence, all the glory for themselves. These religious leaders want to be God. And so they test Jesus. And they accuse Jesus. And eventually, they kill Jesus. Trying to satisfy their own soul's desire to be worshipped, they kill God. Not understanding that true satisfaction only comes when we give worship to God. And Jesus now concludes the parable with the necessary consequence. The master will return, Jesus says, and he will destroy those wicked tenants. The just punishment for rejecting Jesus, for killing him, for trying to be God, for worshiping other things as God, is death. And the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus just said. They knew that with this parable, he just condemned them. And he called them out for misleading Israel. And so true to their character, just as Jesus described them in the parable, they left and they tried to find a way to arrest him. Now, it's clear that this parable is directed specifically towards these religious leaders. It says clearly in verse 12 that they heard Jesus' parable and they perceived that he was talking about them. But this passage does reveal two important truths about the world. And it brings us to our second point. First, this parable teaches that all of us, all people, were made 
to worship God. Because Israel, even though it was picked out as God's special people in the Old Testament, was supposed to be a model, supposed to represent what all people were supposed to be like. And when God called them to know and to worship him for this to be their purpose, God showed that all people were made with this purpose. Now, when we that our purpose is to worship God, it can be easy to think or to view it like there's this hole in God that can only be filled with our worship. And so God is really this kind of egotistic king who just needs and demands our worship to satisfy himself, to fill this hole in himself. But the reality is that we're the ones with the hole. We have a hole in our own souls. And we'll never be satisfied in life. We'll never feel at peace. We'll never feel truly alive unless this hole in us is filled. And only worship can fill this hole. Because when we worship God, when we love him, when we seek to know him, when we thank him and we serve him, we experience in him what we can't experience anywhere else. We experience his unchanging love. We experience his complete acceptance. We experience his delight in us. When we worship God, we are the ones who are satisfied. So when God commands us to worship him, when he makes us with the purpose of worshiping him, it's for our good. It's because he loves us. And the second thing this parable teaches us about the world is that the consequences for rejecting Jesus, for failing to worship Jesus, are the same for all of us. Because we were all made to worship God, and only God deserves this worship, the consequences for rejecting him are the same for all people who reject him, whether the religious leaders of Jesus' day or us today. And it's clear from this passage that rejecting Jesus is not the rejection of all religion. The religious leaders were very religious people. They went to their temple, they obeyed their laws, they looked like what we would consider good people. Rejecting God is not the same as rejecting religion. No, the main way, the main way that we reject Jesus is when we try to be God ourselves. The main way we reject Jesus is when we choose that truth is whatever we want it to be. That we are the ones who get to choose what's right and what's wrong. That we are the ones who get to decide what our purpose is. That we are the ones who get to decide how to use our time and our talents and our resources. We try to be God when we live to be worshipped. We live to be worshipped at work. We live to be worshipped by our friends, by our family. We try to be God when we live like God's approval, if we even think we need God's approval, is ultimately based on the things that we do. 
This is how we're all guilty of rejecting Jesus. Rather than worshiping him on the basis of his love, his saving us, we try to be God in our own lives and get worship from others. And everyone who rejects Jesus ultimately receives this same judgment, destruction. But in this parable of justice and judgment, there's also good news for us. Good news for us. And it starts with what this passage says about the church, our third point. Let's look at verse 9 in this passage again. The master returns, and he takes the vineyard away from the tenants, and he gives the vineyard to others. God justly judges those who reject Christ, but he doesn't leave his people. He gave this vineyard, he gave his people to new tenants, to new leaders. And in this parable, it's looking ahead to when Jesus' 12 disciples would become the 12 apostles. They would be the new leaders of the church, people who would faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully, Obey God and set the foundation for the church. People who would oversee the writing of what we know as the New Testament. And through this word, we can now know God. And our knowing him can lead to loving him. And our loving him to obeying him. And this is worship. Good news that starts with the church, and then there's better news yet. Our last point is what this passage says about Jesus. We know, either in our heads or we know by our own experiences, that even after we believe the gospel, even after we believe that Jesus really is God and we truly worship him as God, even if we were to faithfully read his word and strive to be as loving, as obedient as we possibly can, we are still going to sin. We are still going to fail to worship God like we should. We're still going to be tempted to seek worship of others for ourselves. There are times when we don't love God like we should love God, when we don't love our neighbors like we should love our neighbors. But the best news of this parable is that Jesus foreshadows that he is going to take care of all of this for us. So let's look at verse 10. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's referring to himself in this psalm. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the one who was rejected and who was killed. But now we see him as the one who's been resurrected, as the king. Though he was God's perfect and beloved son, he died the death that we deserve the death that we deserve because of our sin, because of our trying to be God. 
And because he lived the perfect life, perfectly obeying his father, perfectly worshiping the father, he rose from the dead. And he has become the cornerstone on which we can now be built. His perfect life, he gives to any and to all who believe in him. So that when the master comes back to collect the fruit from his vineyard, he won't see our partial, our sinful, our unfaithful fruit. He'll see the perfect fruit that Jesus produced and gives to us. The perfect fruit that God demands from us, he himself produces and gives to us. So now he'll look at us and he'll love us as if we had lived Jesus's perfect life. Because we'll never perfectly obey and yet we will never fail because Jesus is our foundation. He is our cornerstone. And whereas the previous wicked tenants in this parable killed Jesus, trying to take his inheritance for themselves, we, as God's children, become heirs. We become recipients of Jesus' inheritance. He gives it to us. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, that through faith we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And this inheritance that we receive is based on Christ's perfect life, which can never change and can never be taken away. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we confess that we've rejected you in so many ways, so many times. But you are faithful and just to forgive all who come to you in faith. And you make us children of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to worship you in response to your perfect love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.